With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Holiness of God. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Revelation 15. Chapter 8. The Holiness of God. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. Revelation 15.4 He only is independently, infinitely, immutably holy. In Scripture, he is frequently styled the Holy One. He is so because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. He is absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. Holiness is the very excellency of the divine nature. The great God is glorious in holiness, Exodus 15:11. Therefore do we read, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity, Habakkuk 1, 13. As God's power is the opposite of the native weakness of the creature, as his wisdom is in complete contrast from the least defect of understanding or folly, so his holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. Of old, God appointed singers in Israel that they should praise the beauty of holiness. Second Chronicles 20, verse 21. Power is God's hand or arm, omniscience his eye, mercy his bowels, eternity his duration, but holiness is his beauty. That was a quote from Stephen Charnock. It is this supremely which renders him lovely to those who are delivered from sin, sin's dominion. Again, quoting Steve Charnock. Quote, A chief emphasis is placed upon this perfection of God. God is oftener styled holy than almighty and set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other. This is more fixed on as an epitaph to his name than any other. You never find it express his mighty name or his wise name, but his great name or most of all his holy name. This is the greatest title of honor. In this latter doth the majesty and venerableness of his name appear, end quote. This perfection is none other is solemnly celebrated before the throne of heaven, the seraphim, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6.3. God himself singles out this perfection. Once have I sworn by my holiness, Psalm 89, verse 35. God swears by his holiness because that is a fuller expression of himself than anything else. Therefore are we exhorted, sing unto the Lord, all ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Psalm 30, verse 4. This may be said to be a transcendental, transcendental, 
transcendental attribute that, as it were, runs through the rest and casts luster upon them. It is an attribute of attributes. John Howey, 1670. Thus we read of the beauty of the Lord, Psalm 27, verse 4, which is none other than the beauty of holiness, Psalm 110, verse 3. Again, quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, as it seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest, as it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. As all would be weak without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. Should this be sullied, all the rest would lose their honor. As at the same instant the sun should lose its light, it would lose its heat, its strength, its generative and quickening virtue. As sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice, his wisdom a holy wisdom, his arm of power a holy arm. Psalm 98, verse 1. His truth or promise, a holy promise. Psalm 105, verse 42. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Psalm 103.1, end quote. God's holiness is manifested in his works. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Psalm 145, verse 17. Nothing but that which is excellent can proceed from him. Holiness is the rule of all his actions. At the beginning, he pronounced all that he made very good, Genesis 1.31, which he could not have done had there been anything imperfect or unholy in them. Man was made upright, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29, in the image and likeness of his creator. The angels that fell were created holy, for we are told that they kept not their first habitation, Jude 6. Of Satan it is written, Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee, Ezekiel 28, verse 15. God's holiness is manifested in his law. That law forbids sin in all of its modifications in its most refined as well as its grossest forms, the intent of the mind as well as the pollution of the body, the secret desire as well as the overt act. Therefore do we read, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good, Romans 7:12. Yes, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 19, verses 8 and 9. God's holiness is manifested at the cross. Wondrously and yet most solemnly does the atonement display God's infinite holiness and abhorrence of sin. How hateful must sin be to God for him to punish it to its utmost deserts when it was imputed to his son. Quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, 
nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at that time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his dying groans. This he himself acknowledges in Psalm 22, when God had turned his smiling face from him and thrust his sharp knife into his heart, which forced that terrible cry from him, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He adores this perfection. Thou art holy. Verse 3, end quote. Because God is holy, he hates all sin. He loves everything which is in conformity to his law and loathes everything which is contrary to it. His word plainly declares, declares the froward is an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 3.32. And again, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 15, verse 26. It follows, therefore, that he must necessarily punish sin. Sin can no more exist without demanding his punishment than without requiring his hatred of it. God has often forgiven sinners, but he never forgives sin, and the sinner is only forgiven on the ground of another having borne his punishment. For without shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. Therefore we are told, the Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies, Nahum verse. 1 verse 2 for one sin God banished our first parents from Eden for one sin all the posterity of Canaan a son of Ham fell under a curse which remains over them to this day Genesis 9:21. for one sin Moses was excluded from Canaan Elisha's servants smitten with leprosy Ananias and Sapphira cut off out of the land of the living Herein we find proof for the divine inspiration of the scriptures. The unregenerate do not really believe in the holiness of God. Their conception of his character is altogether one-sided. They fondly hope that he, his mercy will override everything else. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether as thyself, Psalm 50, verse 21, is God's charge against them. They think only that a God, little g, patterned after their own evil hearts, hence their continuance in a course of mad folly. Such is the holiness ascribed to the divine nature and character in the scriptures that it clearly demonstrates their superhuman origin. The character attributed to the gods, little g, of the ancient and of modern heathendom is the very reverse of that immaculate, purity which pertains to the true God, an ineffably holy God who has the utmost abhorrence of all sin, was never invented by any of man's fallen descendants. The fact is that nothing makes more manifest the terrible depravity of man's heart and his enmity against the living God than to have set before him one who is infinitely and immutably holy. His own idea of sin is practically limited to what the world calls crime. Anything short of that man palliates as defects, mistakes, infirmities, etc. 
And even where sin is owned at all, excuses and extenuations are made for it. The God, little g, of the vast majority of professing Christians, love is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the word says, Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5, verse 5. And again, God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, verse 11. But men refuse to believe in this God and gnash their teeth when his hatred of sin is faithfully pressed upon their attention. No, sinful man was no more likely to devise a holy God than to create a lake of fire in which he will be tormented forever and ever. Because God is holy, acceptance with him on the ground of creature doings is utterly impossible. A fallen creature could sooner create a world than produce that which would meet the approval of infinite purity. Can darkness dwell with light? Can the Immaculate One take pleasure in filthy rags? Isaiah 64, verse 6. The best that sinful man brings forth is defiled. A corrupt tree cannot bear good fruit. God would deny himself, vilify his perfections, were he to account as righteous and holy that which is not so in itself, and nothing is so which has the least stain upon it contrary to the nature of God. But blessed be his name, that which his holiness demanded his grace has provided in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every poor sinner who has fled to him for refuge stands accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1.6. Hallelujah. Because God is holy, the utmost reverence becomes our, becomes our approaches unto him. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all about him. Psalm 89 verse 7. Then exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool. He is holy, Psalm 99, verse 5. Yes, at his footstool, in the lowest posture of humility, prostrate before him. When Moses would approach unto the burning bush, God said, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, Exodus 3, 5. He is to be served with fear, Psalm 2, verse 11. Of Israel... His demand was, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified, Leviticus 10.3. The more our hearts are awed by his ineffable holiness, the more acceptable will be our approaches unto him. Because God is holy, we should desire to be conformed to him. His command is, be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 We are not bidden to be omnipotent or omniscient as God is, but we are to be holy and that in all manner of deportment. 1 Peter 1.15 Quoting Stephen Charnock, This is the prime way of honoring God. We do not so glorify God by elevated admirations or eloquent expressions or pompous services of him as when we aspire to a conversing with him with unstained spirits and live to him in living like him, end quote. 
then as God alone is the source and fount of holiness, let us earnestly seek holiness from him. Let our daily prayer be that he may sanctify us wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and our whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Chapter 9, The Power of God. We cannot have a right conception of God unless we think of him as all-powerful, as well as all-wise. He who cannot do what he will and perform all his pleasure cannot be God. As God hath a will to resolve what he deems good, so hath he power to execute his will. Quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity, his promises an empty sound, his threatenings a mere scarecrow. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. End quote. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Psalm 62, verse 11. God hath spoken once, nothing more is necessary. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word abideth forever. God hath spoken once, how befitting his divine majesty. We poor mortals may speak often and yet fail to be heard. He speaks but once, and the thunder of his power is heard on a thousand hills. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomforted them. Then the channels of water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. Psalm 18, verses 13 to 15. God hath spoken once. Behold his unchanging authority. For who in the heavens can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? Psalm 89, verse 6. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doth doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Daniel 4.35 This was openly displayed when God became incarnate and tabernacled among men. To the leper he said, I will be thou clean, and immediately, excuse me, I will be thou clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleaned. Matthew 8, verse 3. To one who had lain in the grave four days, he cried, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead came forth. The stormy wind and the angry wave were hushed at a single word from him. A legion of demons could not resist his authoritative command. 
Power belongeth unto God and to him alone. Not a creature in the entire universe has an atom of power save what God delegates. But God's power is not acquired, nor does it depend upon any recognition by any other authority. It belongs to him inherently. Quoting C.H. Spurgeon, quote, God's power is like himself, self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no, no buttress throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He is himself the great central source and originator of all power, end quote. Not only does all creature bear witness, excuse me, not only does all creation bear witness to the great power of God, but also to his entire independency of all created things. Listen to his own challenge. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding, who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who will laid the cornerstone thereof? Job 38, verses 4 to 6. How completely is the pride of man laid in the dust? Quoting Stephen Charnock, quote, Power is also used as a name of God, the Son of Man sitting in the right hand of power, Mark 14:62. That is, at the right hand of God, God and power are so inseparable that they are reciprocated. As his essence is immense, not to be confined in place, as it is eternal, not to be measured in time, so it is almighty, not to be limited in regard of action. End quote. Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job 26.14 who is able to count all the monuments of his power? Even that which is displayed of his might in the visible creation is utterly beyond our powers of comprehension. Still less are we able to conceive of omnipotence itself. This There is infinitely more power lodged in the nature of God than is expressed in all his works. Part of his ways we behold in creation, providence, redemption, but only a little part of his might is seen in them. Remarkably is this brought out in Habakkuk 3, verse 4. And there was the hiding of his power. It is scarcely possible to imagine anything more grandi-eloquent than the imagery of this whole chapter, yet nothing in its Nothing in it surpasses the nobility of this statement. The prophet in vision beheld the mighty God scattering the hills and overturning the mountains, which one would think afforded an amazing demonstration of his power. Nay, says our verse, that it is rather the hiding than the displaying of his power. What is meant? This, so inconceivable, so immense, so uncontrollable, is the power of deity that the fearful convulsions which he works in nature conceal more than they reveal of his infinite power and might. 
It is very beautiful to link together the following passages. He walketh upon the ways of the sea, Job 9.8, which expresses God's uncontrollable power. He walketh in the circuit of heaven, Job 22, verse 14, which tells of the immensity of his presence. He walketh upon the wings of the wind, Psalm 104, verse 3, which signifies the amazing swiftness of his operations. This last expression is very remarkable. It is not that he flieth or runneth, but that he walketh, and that on the very wings of the wind, on the most impetuous of elements, tossed into utmost rage and sweeping along with almost inconceivable rapidity, yet they are under his feet beneath his perfect control. Let us now consider God's power in creation. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south thou hast created them. Psalm 89, verses 11 and 12. Before man can work, he must have both tools and materials. But God began with nothing, and by his word alone, out of nothing, made all things. The intellect cannot grasp it. God spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, verse 9. Primeval matter heard his voice. God said, Let there be, and it was so. Genesis 1. Well may we exclaim, Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, high is thy right hand. Psalm 89, verse 13. Quoting James Hervey. 1789, quote, Who that looks upward to the midnight sky and with an eye of reasoning, reason beholds its rolling wonders, who can forbear inquiring of what were the, their mighty orbs formed? Amazing to relate, they were produced without materials. They sprung from emptiness itself. The stately fabric of universal nature emerged out of nothing. What instruments were used by the supreme architect to fashion the parts with such exquisite niceness and give so beautiful a polish to the whole? How was it all connected into one finely proportioned and nobly finished structure? A bare fiat accomplished all. Let them be, said God. He added no more, and at once the marvelous edifice arose, adorned with every beauty, displaying innumerable perfections, and declaring amidst enraptured seraph its great creator's praise. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33, verse 6, end quote. Consider God's power in preservation. No creature has power to preserve itself. Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow up without water? Job 8:11. Both man and beast would perish if there were not herbs for food, and herbs would wither and die if the earth were not refreshed with fruitful showers. Therefore is God called the preserver of man and beast. Psalm 36, verse 6. He upholdeth all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 3. What a marvel of divine power is the prenatal life of every human being. 
that an infant can live at all and for so many months it's such cramped and filthy quarters and that without breathing is unaccountable without the power of God. Truly, he holdeth our soul in life. Psalm 66, verse 9. The preservation of the earth from the violence of the sea is another plain instance of God's might. How is it that raging elements kept pent within the, those limits that wherein he first lodged it, continuing its channel without overflowing the earth and dashing in pieces the lower part of the creation? The natural situation of the water is to be above the earth because it is lighter and to be immediately under the air because it is heavier. Who restrains the natural quality of it? Certainly man does not and cannot. It is the fiat of its creator which alone bridles it. Hitherto thou shalt come, but no further, and here shall thy proud ways be stayed. Job 38.11 What a standing monument of the power of God is the preservation of the world. Consider God's power and government. Take his restraining of the malice of Satan. The devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 He is filled with hatred against God and with fiendishness, fiendish enmity against men, particularly the saints. He that envied Adam in paradise envies us the pleasure of enjoying any of God's blessings. Could he have his will? He would treat us all the same way he treated Job. He would send fire from heaven on the fruits of the earth, destroy the cattle, cause a wind to overthrow our house, and cover our bodies with boils. But little as men may realize that God bridles him to a large extent, prevents him from carrying out his evil designs, and confines him within his ordinations. So, too, God restrains the natural corruption of men. He suffers sufficient outbreakings of sin to show what fearful havoc has been wrought by man's apostasy from his maker. But who can conceive the frightful length to which men would go were God to remove his curbing hand? Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Romans 3:14 and 15. This is the nature of every descendant of Adam. Then what unbridled licentiousness and headstrong folly would triumph in the world if the power of God did not interpose to lock down the floodgates of it? See Psalm 93, verses 3 and 4. Consider God's power in judgment. When he smites, none can resist him. See Ezekiel 22:14. How terribly this was exemplified at the flood. God opened the windows of heaven and broke up the great fountains of the deep and, accepting those in the ark, the entire human race, helpless before the storm of his wrath, was swept away. A shower of fire and brimstone from heaven and the cities of the plain were exterminated. Pharaoh and all his hosts were impotent when God blew upon them at the Red Sea. What a terrific word is that in Romans 9.22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? God is going to display his mighty power upon the reprobate, not merely by incarcerating them in Gehenna, 
but by supernaturally preserving their bodies as well as souls amidst the eternal burnings of the lake of fire. May well all tremble before such a God to treat with impudence one who can crush us more easily than we can uh, a moth is a suicidal policy to openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence who can rend us in pieces or cast us into hell any moment he pleases is the very height of insanity to put it on its lowest ground it is but the part of wisdom to heed his command kiss the sun lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little Psalm 2.12 Well may the enlightened soul adore such a God. The wondrous and infinite perfections of such a being call for fervent worship. If men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? Who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15:11. Well may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might well despair. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer is too hard for him to answer, no need too great for him to supply, no passion too strong for him to subdue, no temptation too powerful for him to deliver, no misery too deep for him to relieve. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, verse 1. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, excuse me, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Chapter 10, The Faithfulness of God. Unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with exceeding rare exceptions, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand, the sacred bonds of wedlock being broken with as little regard as the discarding of an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth make no scruple to attack and deny it, nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. In how many ways have we been unfaithful to Christ and to the light and privileges which God has entrusted to us? How refreshing, then, how unspeakably blessed to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things, faithful at all times. Know, therefore, that the Lord God, thy God, he is God, the faithful God, Deuteronomy 7, 9. This quality is essential to his being. Without it, he would not be God. For God to be unfaithful would be to act contrary to his nature, which were impossible. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 
Faithfulness is one of the glorious perfections of his being. He is, as it were, clothed with with it. O Lord God of hosts, who is the strong who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Psalm eighty nine verse eight. So too, when God became incarnate, it was said, Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Isaiah 11, verse 5. What a word is that in Psalm 36, verse 5. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness unto the clouds. Far above all finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. Everything about God is great vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered every engagement of covenant or threatening he will make good. For God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Numbers 23, verse 19. Therefore does the believer exclaim, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Scripture abounds in illustrations of God's faithfulness. More than 4,000 years ago, he said, While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8, verse 22. Every year that, that comes furnishes a fresh witness to God's fulfillment of this promise. In Genesis 15, we find that Jehovah declared unto Abraham, Thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and it shall serve them. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Verses 13 to 16. Centuries ran their weary course. Abraham's descendants groaned amid their brick kilns of Egypt. Had God forgotten his promise? No, indeed. Read Exodus 12:44. One. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Through Isaiah the Lord declared, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 7.14 Again, centuries passed, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman. Galatians 4, 4. God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one ever yet really trusted him in vain. We find this precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the scriptures, for his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character. This is the basis of our confidence in him. But it is one thing to accept the faithfulness of God as a divine truth. It is quite another to act upon it. God has given us many exceeding great and precious promises, but are we really counting on his fulfillment of them? 
Are we actually expecting him to do for us all that he has said? Are we resting with implicit assurance on these words? He is faithful that promised. Hebrews 10.23 There are seasons in the lives of all when it is not easy, no, not even for Christians, to believe that God is faithful. Our faith is sorely tried, our eyes be dimmed with tears, and we can no longer trace the outworkings of his love. Our ears are distracted with the noises of the world, harassed by the atheistic whisperings of Satan, and we can no longer hear the sweet accents of his still, small voice. Cherished plans have been thwarted. Friends on whom we relied have failed us. A professed brother or sister in Christ has betrayed us. We are staggered. We sought to be faithful to God, and now a dark cloud hides him from us. We find it difficult, yea, impossible, for carnal reason to harmonize his frowning providence with his gracious promises. Ah, faltering souls, severely tried fellow pilgrims, seek grace to heed, Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Yet let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. When you are tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God, cry out, Get thee hence, Satan. Though you cannot now harmonize God's mysterious dealings with the avowals of his love, wait on him for more light. In his own good time he will make it plain to you. What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. John 13:7. The sequel will yet demonstrate that God has neither forsaken nor deceived his child. And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all that they that wait on him, or wait for him, Isaiah 30, verse 18. Thy, testimony, thy testimonies which thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful, Psalm 119, verse 138. God has not only told us the best, but he has not withheld the worst. He has faithfully described the ruin which the fall has affected. He has faithfully diagnosed the terrible state which sin has produced. He has faithfully made known his inveterate hatred of evil and that he must punish the same. He has faithfully warned us that he is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.29 Not only does his word abound in illustrations of his fidelity, fidelity in fulfilling his promises, but it also records numerous examples of his faithfulness in making good his threatenings. Every stage of Israel's history exemplifies that solemn fact. So it was with individuals. Pharaoh, Korah, Achan, and a host of others are so many proofs. And thus it will be for you, my reader, unless you have fled or do flee to Christ for refuge, the everlasting burnings of the lake of fire will be your sure and certain portion. God is faithful. God is faithful in preserving his people. God is faithful by whom you are called unto the fellowship of his Son. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9. In the previous verse, promise was made that God would confirm 
confirm unto the end his own people. The apostles' confidence in the absolute security of believers was founded not on the strength of their resolutions or ability to persevere, but on the veracity of him that cannot lie. Since God has promised to his Son a certain people for his inheritance, to deliver them from sin and condemnation, and to make them participants of eternal life and glory, it is certain that he will not allow any of them to perish. God is faithful in disciplining his people. He is faithful in what he withholds, no less than in what he gives. He is faithful in sending sorrow as well as in giving joy. The faithfulness of God is a truth to be confessed by us, not only when we are at ease, but also when we are smarting under the sharpest rebuke. Nor must this confession be merely of our mouths, but of our hearts, too. When God smites us with the rod of chastisement, it is faithfulness which wields it. To acknowledge this means that we humble ourselves before him, own that we fully deserve his correction, and instead of murmuring, thank him for it. God never afflicts without a reason. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, 1 Corinthians 11.30, says Paul, illustrating this principle. When his rod falls upon us, let us say with Daniel, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. Daniel 9, verse 7. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Psalm 119.75 Trouble and affliction are not only consistent with God's love pledged in the everlasting covenant, but they are parts of the administration of the same. God is not only faithful with standing afflictions, but faithful in sending them. Then will I visit their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. My loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Psalm 89, verses 32 and 33. Chastening is not only reconcilable with God's loving kindness, but it is the effect and expression of it. It would much quiet the minds of God's people if they would remember that his covenant binds him to lay on them seasonable correction. Afflictions are necessary for us. In their affliction, they will seek me early, Hosea 5.15. God is faithful in glorifying his people. Faithful is he which calleth you, which will also, which who also will do, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. The immediate reference here is to the saints being preserved, blameless, unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God deals with us not on the ground of our merits, for we have none but for his own great namesake. God is constant to himself and to his own purpose of grace, whom he called, them he also glorified, Romans 8.30. God gives a full demonstration of the constancy of his everlasting goodness towards his elect by effectually calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this should fully assure them of the certain continuance of it. The foundation of God standeth sure, Second Timothy 2.19. Paul was resting on the faithfulness of God when he said, I know whom I have believed, and 
am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12. Continuing on with the last portion of uh, the faithfulness of God, the apprehension of this blessed truth will preserve us from worry. To be full of care, to view our situation with dark forebodings, to anticipate the morrow with sad anxiety, is to reflect poorly upon the faithfulness of God. He who has cared for his child through all the years will not forsake him in old age. He who heard your prayers in the past will not refuse to supply your need in the present emergency. Rest on Job 5.19. He shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. The apprehension of this blessed truth will check our murmurings. The Lord knows what is best for each one of us, and each one effect of resting on this truth will be the silencing of our petulant complainings. God is greatly honored when, under trial and chastening, we have good thoughts of him, if indicate his wisdom and justice, and recognize his love in, the, in his very rebukes. The apprehension of this blessed truth will beget increasing confidence in God. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. 1 Peter 4.19 when we trustfully resign ourselves and all our affairs into God's hands, fully persuaded of his love and faithfulness, the sooner shall we be satisfied with his providences and realize that he doeth all things well. Chapter 11, The Goodness of God. The goodness of God endureth continually, Psalm 52, 1. The goodness of God refers to the perfection of his nature. God is light, and in him no darkness and in him is no darkness at all. First John one five. There is such and wanting it to it or defective in it, and nothing can be added to it to make it better. Quote from Thomas Manton. He is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is, for all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super-added quality. In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop, but in God there is an infinite ocean of gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no, so no subtraction from him, end quote. God is sumen bonum, the highest good. God is not only the greatest of all beings, but the best. All the goodness there is in any creature has been imparted from the creator, but God's goodness is underived for it is the essence of his eternal nature. As God is infinite in power from all eternity, before there was any display thereof or any act of omnipotence he put forth, so he was eternally good before there was any communication of his bounty or any creature to whom it might be imparted. 
Thus, the first manifestation of this divine perfection was in giving being to all things. Thou art good and doest good. Psalm 119, verse 68. God has in himself an infinite and inexhaustible treasure of all blessedness, enough to fill all things. All that emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences, cannot be otherwise than good, as it is written, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 1.31 Thus, the goodness of God is seen first in creation. The more closely the creature is studied, the more the beneficence of its creator becomes apparent. Take the highest of God's earthly creatures, man. Abundant reason he has to say with the psalmist, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Psalm 139, verse 14. Everything about the structure of our bodies attests the goodness of their maker. How suited the hands to perform their allotted work. How good of the Lord to appoint sleep to refresh the weary body. How benevolent his provision to give to the eyes, lids, and brows for their protection. And so we might continue indefinitely. Nor is the goodness of the Creator confined to man. It is exercised towards all his creatures. The eyes of all wait upon thee, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thy hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16. Whole volumes might be written, yea, have been, to amplify this fact. Whether it be the birds of the air, the beasts of the forest, or the fish of the sea, abundant provision has been made to supply their every need. God giveth food to all flesh, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136.25 Truly, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 5 The goodness of God is seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he has provided for his creatures. God might have been pleased to satisfy our hunger without the food being pleasing to our palates. How his benevolence appears in the varied flavors which he has given to meats, vegetables, and fruits. God has not only given us senses, but also that which gratifies them, and this too reveals his goodness. The earth might have been as fertile as it is without its surface being so delightfully variegated. Our physical lives could have been sustained without beautiful flowers to regale our eyes with their colors and our nostrils with their sweet perfumes. We might have walked the fields without our ears being saluted by the music of the birds. Whence then this loveliness, this charm so freely diffused over the face of nature? Verily, the tender mercies of the Lord are all over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. The goodness of God is seen in that when man transgressed the law of his creator, a dispensation of unmixed wrath did not at once commence. Well might God have deprived his fallen creatures of every blessing, every comfort, every pleasure. Instead, he ushered in a regime of a mixed nature of mercy and judgment. This is very wonderful if it be duly considered and the more thoroughly that re regimen 
excuse me, that regime be examined, the more will it appear that mercy rejoiceth against judgment, James 2.13. Notwithstanding all the evils which attend our fallen state, the balance of good greatly preponderates. With comparatively rare exceptions, men and women experience a far greater number of days of health than they do of sickness and pain. There is much more creature happiness than creature misery in the world. Even our sorrows admit of considerable alleviation, and God has given to the human mind a pliability which adapts itself to circumstances and makes the most of them. Nor can the benevolence of God be justly called into question because there is suffering and sorrow in the world. If man sins against the goodness of God, if he despises the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, and after the hardness and impenitency of his heart treasureth up unto himself wrath against the day of wrath, Romans 2, 4 and 5, who is to blame but himself? Would God be good if he punished not those who ill-use his blessings, abuse his benevolence, and trample his mercies beneath their feet? It will be no reflection upon God's goodness, but rather the brightest exemplification of it, when he shall rid the earth of those who have broken his laws, defied his authority, mocked his messengers, scorned his son, and persecuted those for whom he died. The goodness of God appeared most illustriously when he sent forth his son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Then it was that a multitude of the heavenly hosts praised their maker and said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. Luke 2, 14. Yes, in the gospel, the grace, which word in Greek conveys the idea of benevolence or goodness of God, that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, Titus 2.11. Nor can God's benignity be called into question because he has not made every sinful creature to be, subject, to be a subject of his redemptive grace. He did not bestow it upon the fallen angels. Had God left all to perish, it would have been no reflection on his goodness. To any who would challenge this statement, we will remind him of our Lord's sovereign prerogative. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine I evil because I am good? Matthew 20, verse 15. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Psalm 107, verse 8. Gratitude is the return justly required from the objects of his beneficence, yet it is often withheld from our great benefactor simply because his goodness is so constant and so abundant. It is lightly esteemed because it is exercised towards us in the common course of events. It is not felt because we daily experience it. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Romans 2.4 his goodness is despised when it is not improved as a means to lead men to repentance, but, on the contrary, serves to harden them from the supposition that God entirely overlooks their sin. The goodness of God is the life of the believer's trust. It is this excellency in God which most appeals to our hearts. Because his goodness endureth forever, we ought never to be discouraged. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Nahum 1.7 
quoting C.H. Spurgeon, quote, When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord, because he is good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless him that he is good. We must never tolerate an instance unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain that Jehovah is good. His dispensations may vary, but his nature is always the same. End quote. Chapter 12, The Patience of God. Far less has been written upon this than any other excellencies of the divine character. Not a few of those who have expatiated at length upon the divine attributes have passed over the patience of God without any comment. It is not easy to suggest a reason for this, for surely the long-suffering of God is as much one of the divine perfections as is his wisdom, power, or holiness, and as much to be admired and revered by us. True, the actual term will not be found in a concordance as frequently as the others, but the glory of this grace itself shines forth on almost every page of Scripture. Certain it is that when we lose much, if that we lose much if we do not frequently meditate upon the patience of God and earnestly pray that our hearts and ways be more completely conformed thereto. Most probably the principal reason why so many writers have failed to give us anything separately upon the patience of God was because of the difficulty in dis of distinguishing this attribute from the divine goodness and mercy particularly the latter. God's long-suffering is mentioned in conjunction with his grace and mercy again and again, as may be seen by consulting Exodus 34, 6, Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 86, 15, etc. That the patience of God is really a display of his mercy, that it is indeed one way in which it is frequently manifested, cannot be denied. But that patience and mercy are one and the same excellency and are not to be separated, we cannot concede. It may not be easy to discriminate between them. Nevertheless, Scripture fully warrants us in affirming some things about the one which we cannot about the other. Stephen Charnock, the Puritan, defines God's patience in part thus, quote, It is part of the divine goodness and mercy, yet differs from both. God being the greatest goodness hath the greatest mildness. Mildness is always the companion of true goodness, and the greater the goodness, the greater the mildness. Who so holy as Christ, and who so meek? God's slowness to anger is a branch from his mercy. The Lord is full of compassion, slow to anger. Psalm 145, verse 8. It differs from mercy in the formal consideration of the object, Mercy respects the creature as miserable. Patience respects the creature as criminal. Mercy pities him in his misery, and patience bears with the sin which engendered the misery and which is giving birth to more. End quote. Personally, we would define the divine patience as that power of control which God exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. In Nahum 1, verse 3, we read, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, upon which Mr. Charnock said, quote, 
Men that are great in the world are quick in passion and are not so ready to forgive an injury or bear with an offender as one of the meaner rank. It is a want of power over that man's self that makes him do unbecoming things upon a provocation. A prince that can bridle his passions is a king over himself as well as over his subjects. God is slow to anger because great in power. He has no less power over himself than over his creatures, end quote. It is at the above point we think that God's patience is most clearly distinguished from his mercy. Though the creature is benefited thereby, the patience of God, God chiefly respects himself, a restraint placed upon his acts by his will, whereas his mercy terminates wholly upon the creature. The patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. He has a power of patience as well as a power of justice. Thus the Hebrew word for the divine long-suffering is rendered slow to anger. In Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 103, verse 8, etc., not that there are any passions in the divine nature, but that God's wisdom and will is pleased to act with that stateliness and sobriety which is becoming to his exalted majesty. In support of our definition above, let us point out that it was to this excellency in the divine character that Moses appealed when Israel sinned so grievously at Kadesh Barnea, and there provoked Jehovah so sorely. Unto his servant the Lord said, I will smite them with the pestilence and disherit them. Then it was that the mediator Moses, as a type of the Christ to come, pleaded, I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering, etc. Numbers 14:17. Thus his long-suffering is his power of self-restraint. Again, in Romans 9:22, we read, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Were God to immediately break these reprobate vessels into pieces, his power of self-control would not so eminently appear. By bearing with their wickedness and forbearing punishment so long, the power of his patience is gloriously demonstrated. True, the wicked interpret his long-suffering quite differently. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 But the anointed eye adores what they abuse. The God of patience, Romans 15.5, is one of the divine titles. Deity is thus denominated first because God is both the author and object of the grace of patience in the saint. Secondly, because this is what he is in himself. Patience is one of his perfections. Thirdly, as a pattern for us, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Colossians 3.12. And again, be ye therefore followers or emulators of God as dear children, Ephesians 5.2. When tempted to be disgusted at the dullness of another or to be revenged on one who has wronged you, call to remembrance God's infinite patience and long-suffering with yourself.
The patience of God is manifested in his dealings with sinners, how strikingly it was displayed towards the antediluvians. When mankind was universally degenerate and all flesh had corrupted its way, God did not destroy them till he had forewarned them. He waited, 1 Peter 3.20, probably no less than 120 years, Genesis 6.3, during which time Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5. So, later, when the Gentiles not only worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, but also committed the vilest abominations contrary even to the dictates of nature, Romans 1, 19-26, and thereby filled up the measure of their iniquity, yet, instead of drawing his sword for extermination of such rebels, God suffered all nations to walk in their own ways and gave them rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, Acts 14, 16, and 17. Marvelously was God's patience exercised and manifested towards Israel. First, he suffered their manners for 40 years in the wilderness, Acts 13, 18. Later, when they had entered Canaan, but followed the evil customs of the nations around them and turned to idolatry, Though God chastened them sorely, he did not utterly destroy them, but in their distress raised up deliverers for them. When their iniquity was raised to such a height that none but a God of infinite patience could have borne them, he spared them many years before he allowed them to be carried down into Babylon. Finally, when their rebellion against him reached its climax by crucifying his son, He waited 40 years ere he sent the Romans against them, and that only after they had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, Acts 13.46. How wondrous is God's patience with the world today. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot, and God himself openly despised It is truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Why does he not suddenly cut off the haughty infidel and blatant blasphemer as he did Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not cause the earth to open its mouth and devour the persecutors of his people so that, like Dathan and Abiram, they shall go down alive into the pit? And what of apostate Christendom? where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ, why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Only one answer is possible, because God bears with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. And what of the writer and the reader? Let us review our own lives. Is it not long since we followed a multitude to do evil, had no concern for God's glory, and lived only to gratify self? How patiently he bore with our vile conduct. And now that grace has snatched us as brands from the burning, giving us a place in God's family, and has begotten us unto an eternal inheritance in glory, how miserably we requite him, How shallow our gratitude, how tardy our obedience, how frequent our backslidings. One reason why God suffers the flesh to remain in the believer is that he may exhibit his long-suffering to usward, 2 Peter 3, 9. Since this divine attribute is manifested only in this world, God takes advantage to display it towards his own. 
May our meditation upon this divine excellency soften our hearts, make our consciences tender, and may we learn in the school of holy experience the patience of saints, namely, submission to the divine will and continuance in doing well. Let us earnestly seek grace to emulate this divine excellency. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Matthew 5:48. In the immediate context of this verse, Christ exhorts us to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us. God bears long with the wicked, notwithstanding the multitude of their sins, and shall we desire to be revenged because of a single in injury? Chapter 13, The Grace of God. Grace is a perfection of the divine character which is exercised only towards the elect. Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New is the grace of God ever mentioned in connection with mankind generally, still less with the lower orders of his creatures. In this it is distinguished from mercy, for the mercy of God is over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. Grace is the sole source from which flows the goodwill, love, and salvation of God unto his chosen people. This attribute of the divine character was defined by Abraham Booth in his helpful book, The Reign of Christ, thus, quote, It is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the vouchsafement of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and the unworthy, end quote. Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Nay, more, it is the favor of God shown to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. It is completely unmerited and unsought, and is altogether unattracted by anything in or from or by the objects upon which it is bestowed. Grace can neither be bought earn nor won by the creature if it could be it would cease to be grace when a thing is said to be of grace we mean that the recipient has no claim upon it that it was in no wise due him it comes to him as pure charity and at first unasked and undesired the fullest exposition of the amazing grace of God is to be found in the epistles of the Apostle Paul. In his writings, grace stands in direct opposition to works and worthiness, all works and worthiness of whatever kind or degree. This is abundantly clear from Romans 11, verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more work grace. If it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Grace and works will no more unite than an acid and an alkali. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. The absolute favor of God can no more consist with human merit than oil, oil and water will fuse into one. See also Romans 4, 4 and 5. There are three principal characteristics of divine grace. First, it is eternal. Grace was planned before it was exercised, purposed before it was imparted. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy, with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy 1.9 Secondly, it is free, for none did ever purchase it, being justified freely by his grace. Romans 3.24 Thirdly, it is sovereign, because God exercises it toward and bestows it upon whom he pleases. Even so might grace reign, Romans 5.21. If grace reigns, then it is on the throne, and the occupant of the throne is sovereign. Hence, the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. Just because grace is unmerited favor, it must be exercised in a sovereign manner. Therefore does the Lord declare, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, Exodus 33.19. Were God to show grace to all of Adam's descendants, men would at once conclude that he was righteously compelled to take them to heaven as a meet compensation for allowing the human race to fall into sin. But the great God is under no obligation to any of his creatures, least of all to those who are rebels against him. Eternal life is a gift, therefore it can neither be earned by good works nor claimed as a right. Seeing that salvation is a gift, who has any right to tell God on whom he ought to bestow it? It is not that the giver ever refuses this gift to any who seek it wholeheartedly and according to the rules which he has prescribed. No, he refuses none who come to him empty-handed in the way of his appointing. But if out of a world of impenitent and unbelieving rebels, God is determined to exercise his sovereign right by choosing a limited number to be saved, who is wronged? Is God obliged to force his gift on those who value it not? Is God compelled to save those who are determined to go their own way? But nothing more riles the natural man and brings to the surface his innate and inveterate enmity against God than to press upon him the eternality, the freeness, and the absolute sovereignty of divine grace, that God should have formed his purpose from everlasting without in any wise consulting the creature, is too abasing for the unbroken heart. That grace cannot be earned or won by any effort of man is too self-emptying for self-righteousness. And that grace singles out whom it pleases to be favored objects... Oh, excuse me. And the, that grace singles out whom it pleases to be its favored objects arouses hot protest from haughty rebels. The clay rises up against the potter and asks, Why hast thou made me thus? A lawless insurrectionist dares to call into question the justice of divine sovereignty. The distinguishing grace of God is seen in saving those people whom he has sovereignly singled out to be his high favorites. By distinguishing, we mean that grace discriminates, making differences, choosing some and passes by others. It was distinguishing grace which selected Abraham from the midst of his idolatrous neighbors and made him the friend of God. It was distinguishing grace which saved publicans and sinners, but said of the religious Pharisees, let them alone, Matthew 15 and 14. Nowhere does the glory of God's free and sovereign grace shine more conspicuously than in the unworthiness and unlikeliness of its objects. Beautifully was this illustrated by James Hervey in 1751, quote, Where sin has abounded, says the proclamation from the court of heaven, grace doth much more abound, 
Manasseh was a monster of barbarity, for he caused his own children to pass through the fire and fill Jerusalem with innocent blood. Manasseh was an adept was an in, adept in iniquity, for he was not only multiplied and to an extravagant degree his own sacrilegious impieties, but he poisoned the principles and perverted the manners of his subjects, making them do worse than the most detestable of the heathen idolaters. See Second Chronicles 33. Yet through this superabundant grace, he is humbled, he is reformed, and becomes a child of forgiving love, an heir of immortal glory. Still quoting, Behold, that bitter and bloody persecutor Saul, when breathing out threatenings and bent upon slaughter, he worried the lambs and put to death the disciples of Jesus. The havoc he had committed, the inoffensive families he had already ruined, were not sufficient to assuage his vengeful spirit. They were only a taste which, instead of glutting the bloodhound, made him more closely pursue the track and more eagerly pant for destruction. He is still a thirst for violence and murder. So eager and insatiable is his thirst that he even breathes out threatening and slaughter. Acts 9.1 His words are spears and arrows, and his tongue a sharp sword. Tis as natural for him to menace the Christians as to breathe the air. Nay, they bled every hour in the purpose of purposes of his rancorous heart it is only owing to want of power that every syllable he utters every breath he draws does not deal out deaths and cause some of the innocent disciples to fall who upon the principles of human judgment would not have pronounced him a vessel of wrath destined to unavoidable damnation they would not have been ready to conclude that if there were heavier chains and a deeper dungeon in the world of woe, they must surely be reserved for such an implacable enemy of true godliness. Yet admire and adore the inexhaustible treasures of grace. This Saul is admitted into the goodly fellowship of the prophets, is numbered with the noble army of martyrs, and makes a distinguishing figure among the glorious company of the apostles. The Corinthians were flitigious, even to a, a proverb. Some of them wallowed in such abominable vices and habituated themselves to such outrageous acts of injustice as were a reproach to human nature. Yet even these sons of violence and slaves of sensuality were washed, sanctified, and justified. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Washed in the precious blood of a dying Redeemer sanctified by the powerful operations of the Blessed Spirit, justified through the infinitely tender mercies of a gracious God. Those who were once the burden of the earth are now the joy of heaven, the delight of angels." End quote. Now the grace of God is manifested in and by and through the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, John 1.17. This does not mean that God never exercised grace towards any before his son became incarnate. Genesis 6.8, Exodus 13.19, etc. clearly shows otherwise. But grace and truth were fully revealed and perfect, perfectly exemplified when the Redeemer came to this earth 
and die for his people upon the cross. It is through Christ, the mediator alone, that the grace of God flows to his elect. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. So might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, 15, 17, and 21. The grace of God is proclaimed in the gospel, Acts 20:24, which is to the self-righteous Jew a stumbling block, and to the conceited and philosophizing Greek foolishness. And why so? Because there is nothing whatever in it that is adopted to the gratifying of the pride of man. It announces that unless we are saved by grace, we cannot be saved at all. It declares that apart from Christ, the unspeakable gift of God's grace, the state of every man is desperate, irremediable, and hopeless. The gospel addresses men as guilty, condemned, perishing criminals. It declares that the chastest moralist is in the same terrible plight as is the most voluptuous profligate. And the zealous professor with all his religious performances is no better off than the most profane infidel. The gospel contemplates every descendant of Adam as a fallen, polluted, hell-deserving, and helpless sinner. The grace which the gospel publishes is his only hope. All stand before God convicted as transgressors of his holy law, as guilty and condemned criminals who are not merely awaiting sentence, but the execution of sentence already passed upon them, John 3.18 and Romans 3.19. To complain against the partiality of grace is suicidal. If the sinner insists upon bare justice, then the lake of fire must be his eternal portion. His only hope lies in bowing to the sentence which divine justice has passed upon him, owning the absolute righteousness of it, casting himself on the mercy of God and stretching forth empty hands to avail himself of the grace of God now made known to him in the gospel. The third person in the Godhead is the communicator of grace. Therefore, he is denominated the spirit of grace, Zechariah 12.10. God the Father is the fountain of all grace, for he purposed in himself the everlasting covenant of redemption. God the Son is the only channel of grace. The gospel is the publisher of grace. The Spirit is the store. He is the one who applies the gospel in saving power to the soul, quickening the elect while spiritually dead, conquering their rebellious wills, melting their hard hearts, opening their blind eyes, cleansing them from the leprosy of sin. Thus we may say with the late G.S. Bishop, quote, Grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to him, so blind that they cannot see him, so deaf that they cannot hear him, and so dead that he himself must open their graves and lift them into resurrection, end quote. Chapter 14, The Mercy of God. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136, verse 1. 
For this perfection of the divine character is greatly to be praised. Three times over, in as many verses, does the psalmist here call upon the saints to give thanks unto the Lord for this adorable attribute. And surely this is the least that can be asked for from those who have been recipients of such bounty. When we contemplate the characteristics of this divine excellency, we cannot do otherwise than bless God for it. His mercy is great, 1 Kings 3.6, plenteous, Psalm 86, verse 5, tender, Luke 1, 78, abundant, 1 Peter 1, 3, it is from everlasting to everlasting unto them that fear him, Psalm 103, verse 17. Well may we say with the psalmist, I will sing aloud of thy mercy, Psalm 59, verse 16. I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33:19. Wherein differs the mercy of God from his grace? The mercy of God has its spring in the divine goodness. The first issue of God's goodness is his benignity, benignity or bounty, by which he gives liberally to his creatures as creatures. Thus he has given being and life to all things. The second issue of God's goodness is his mercy, which denotes the ready inclination of God to relieve the misery of fallen creatures. Thus, mercy presupposes sin. Though it may not be easy at the first consideration to perceive a real difference between the grace and the mercy of God, it helps us thereto if we carefully ponder his dealings with the unfallen angels. He has never exercised mercy towards them, for they had never stood in any need thereof, not having sinned or come beneath the effects of the curse. Yet they certainly are the objects of God's free and sovereign grace. First, because of his election of them from out of the whole angelic race, 1 Timothy 5.21. Secondly, and in consequence of their election, because of his per- preservation of them from apostasy, when Satan rebelled and dragged down with him one-third of the celestial host, Revelation 12:14. Thirdly, in making Christ their head, Colossians 2:10 and 1 Peter 3:22, whereby they are eternally secured in the holy condition in which they were created. Fourthly, because of the exalted position which has been assigned them, to live in God's immediate presence, Daniel 7:10, to serve Him constantly in the heavenly in His heavenly temple, to receive honorable commissions from Him, Hebrews 1:14. Thus is abundant grace towards them, but mercy, it is not. In endeavoring to study the mercy of God as it is set forth in the Scripture, a threefold distinction needs to be made if the word of truth is to be rightly divided thereon. First. There is a general mercy of God which is extended not only to all men, believers and unbelievers alike, but also to the entire creation. His tender mercies are over all his works, Psalm 145, verse 9. He giveth to all life and breath and all things, Acts 17:25. God has pity upon the brute creation in their needs and supplies them with suitable provisions. Secondly, there is a special mercy of God which is exercised towards the children of men, helping and succoring them, notwithstanding their sins. 
To them also he communicates all the necessities of life, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5:45. Thirdly, there is a sovereign mercy which is reserved for the heirs of salvation, which is communicated to them in a covenant way through the mediator. Following out a little further, the difference between the second and third distinctions pointed out above, it is important to note that the mercies which God bestows on the wicked are solely of a temporal nature. That is to say, they are confined strictly to this present life. There will be no mercy extended to them beyond the grave. It is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he hath made them will he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them will show them no favor. Isaiah 27:11. But at this point, a difficulty may suggest itself to some of our readers. Namely, does not Scripture affirm that his mercy endureth forever? Psalm 136, verse 1. Two things need to be pointed out in that connection. God can never cease to be merciful, for this is a quality of the divine essence. Psalm 116, verse 5. But the exercise of his mercy is regulated by a sovereign will. This must be so, for there is nothing outside himself which obliges him to act. If there were, that something would be supreme, and God would cease to be God. It is pure sovereign grace which alone determines the exercise of divine mercy. God expressly affirms this fact in Romans 9.15, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It is not the wretchedness of the creature which causes him to show mercy, for God is not influenced by things outside of himself as we are. If God were influenced by the abject misery of leprous sinners, he would cleanse and save all of them. But he does not. Why? Simply because it is not his pleasure and purpose to do so. Still less, it is the merits of the creature which causes him to bestow mercies upon them, for it is a contradiction in terms to speak of meriting mercy. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Titus 3.5 the one standing in direct antithesis to the other. Nor is it the merit of Christ which moves God to bestow mercies on his elect. That would be substituting the effect for the cause. It is through or because of the tender mercy of our God that Christ was sent here to his people. Luke 1.78 The merits of Christ make it possible for God to righteously bestow spiritual mercies on his elect, justice having been fully satisfied by the surety no, mercy arises solely from God's imperial pleasure. Again, though it be true, blessedly and gloriously true, that God's mercy endureth forever, yet we must observe carefully the objects to whom his mercy is shown. Even the casting of the reprobate into the lake of fire is an act of mercy. The punishment of the wicked is to be contemplated from a three-point threefold viewpoint. From God's side, it is an act of justice, vindicating his honor. The mercy of God is never shown to the prejudice of his holiness and righteousness. From their side, it is an act of equity, when they are made to suffer the due reward of their iniquities. But from the standpoint of the redeemed, the punishment of the wicked is an act of unspeakable mercy. How dreadful would it be if the present order of things 
when the children of God are obliged to live in the midst of the children of the devil, should continue forever. Heaven would be at one, heaven would at once cease to be heaven if the ears of the saints still heard the blasphemous and filthy language of the reprobate. What a mercy that in the new Jerusalem there shall be no, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither worketh abomination. Revelation twenty one twenty seven. Lest the reader might think in the last paragraph we have been drawing upon our imagination, let us appeal to Holy Scripture in support of what has been said. In Psalm 143:12, we find David praying, And of the, thy mercy cut off mine enemies, and destroy all of them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. Again, in Psalm 136, verse 15, we read that God overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. It was an act of vengeance upon Pharaoh and his host, but it was an act of mercy upon the Israelites. Again, in Revelation 19, verses 1 to 3, we read, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. From what has just been before us, let us note how vain is the presumptuous hope of the wicked, who, notwithstanding their continued defiance of God, nevertheless count upon his merciful, being merciful to them, how many there are who say, I do not believe that God will ever cast me into hell. He is too merciful. Such a hope is a viper, which if cherished in their bosoms will sting them to death. God is a God of justice as well as mercy, and he has expressly declared that he will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34.7 Yea, he has said, the wicked shall be turned into hell. All the nations shall forget God. I, Psalm 9, verse 17. As well might men reason thus, I do not believe that if filth be allowed to accumulate and sewage becomes stagnant and people deprive themselves of fresh air, that a merciful God will let them fall a prey to a deadly fever. The fact is that those who neglect the laws of health are carried away by disease, notwithstanding God's mercy. Equally true is it that those who neglect the laws of spiritual health shall forever suffer the second death. Unspeakably solemn is it to see so many abusing this divine perfection. They continue to despise God's authority, trample upon his laws, continue in sin, and yet presume upon his mercy. But God will not be unjust to himself. God shows mercy to the truly penitent, but not to the impenitent, Luke 13:3. To continue in sin and yet reckon upon divine mercy, remitting punishment, is diabolical. It is saying, let us do evil that good may come, and of all such it is written that their damnation is just, Romans 3:8. Presumption shall most certainly be disappointed. Read carefully Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 to 20. Christ is the spiritual mercy seat, and all who despise and reject 
His lordship shall perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little, Psalm 2.12. But let our final thought be of God's spiritual mercies unto his own people. Thy mercy is great unto the heavens, Psalm 57.10. The riches thereof transcend our loftiest thought. For as the heavens is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him, Psalm 103.11. None can measure it. The elect are designated vessels of mercy, Romans 9.23. It is mercy that quickened them when they were dead in sins, Ephesians 2.4 and 5. It is mercy that saves them, Titus 3.5. It is his abundant mercy which begat them unto an eternal inheritance. 1 Peter 1.3. Time would fail us to tell of his preserving, sustaining, pardoning, supplying mercy. Unto his own, God is the Father of mercy. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Chapter 15, The Love of God. There are three things told us in Scripture concerning the nature of God. First, God is spirit. John 4.24. In the Greek, there is no indefinite article, and to say God is a spirit is most objectionable, for it places him in class with others. God is spirit in the highest sense. Because he is spirit, he is incorporeal, having no visible substance. Had God a tangible body, he would not be omnipresent. He would not be limited to one place. Because he is spirit, he fills heaven and earth. Secondly, God is light, 1 John 1, 5, which is the opposite of darkness. In Scripture, darkness stands for sin, evil, death, and the light for holiness, goodness, and life. God is light means that he, excuse me, God is light means that he is the sum of all excellency. Thirdly, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. It is not simply that God loves, but that he is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes, but his very nature. There are many today who talk about the love of God who are total strangers to the love of God. The divine love is commonly regarded as a species of amiable weakness, a sort of good-natured indulgence. It is reduced to a mere sickly sentiment, pattern after human emotion. Now, the truth is that on this, as in on everything else, our thoughts need to be formed and regulated by what is revealed thereon in Holy Scripture. That there is an urgent need for this is apparent not only from the ignorance which so generally prevails, but also the low state of spirituality which is now so sadly evident everywhere among professing Christians. How little real love there is for God. One chief reason for this is because our hearts are so little occupied with his wondrous love for his people. The better we are acquainted with his love, its character, fullness, blessedness, the more will our hearts be drawn out in love to him. Number one, the love of God is uninfluenced. By this we mean there was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it into exercise nothing in the creature to attract or prompt it. The love which one creature has for another is because of something in the object, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, and uncaused. The only reason why God loves any is found in his own sovereign will. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but... Because the Lord loved thee, Deuteronomy 7, 7, and 8. 
God has loved his people from everlasting, and therefore nothing about the creature can be the cause of what is found in God from eternity. He loves from himself according to his own purpose. 2 Timothy 1.9 We love him because he first loved us, urged John 4.19. God did not love us because we loved him, but he loved us be before we had a particle of love for him. Had God loved us in return for ours, then it would not be spontaneous on his part, but because he loved us when we were loveless, it is clear that his love was uninfluenced. It is highly important, if God is to be honored and the heart of his child established, that we should be quite clear upon this precious truth. God's love for me and for each of his own was entirely unmoved by anything in us. What was there in me to attract the heart of God? Absolutely nothing. But, to the contrary, there was everything to repel him, everything calculated to make him loathe me. Sinful, depraved, a mass of corruption with no good in me. Two, it is eternal. This of a necessity. God himself is eternal and God is love. Therefore, as God himself has no beginning, his love had none. Granted that such a concept far transcends the grasp of our feeble minds, nevertheless, where we cannot comprehend, we can bow in adoring worship. How clear is the testimony of Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved thee with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn thee. How blessed to know that the great and holy God loved his people before heaven and earth were called into existence, that he has set his heart upon them from all eternity. Clear proof of this is that his love is spontaneous, for he loved them endless ages before they had any being. The same precious truth is set before is set forth in Ephesians one verses four and five. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us. What praise should this evoke from each of his own children? How tranquilizing for the heart, since God's love towards me had no beginning, it can have no ending. Since it is true that from everlasting since it is true that from everlasting to everlasting he is God, and since God is love, then it, it is equally true that from everlasting to everlasting he loves his people. Three, it is sovereign. This also is self-evident. God himself is sovereign. Under obligations to none, a law unto himself, acting always according to his own imperial pleasure. Since God is sovereign and since he is love, it necessarily follows that he, his love is sovereign. Because God is God, he does as he pleases. Because God is love, he loves whom he pleases. Such is his own express affirmation. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Romans 9.13 There was no more reason in Jacob why he should be the object of divine love than there was in Esau. They were they both had the same parents and were born at the same time, being twins. Yet God loved the one and hated the other. Why? Because it pleased him to do so. The sovereignty of God's love necessarily follows from the fact that it is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. 
Thus, to affirm that the cause of his own love lies in God himself is an, only another way of saying he loves whom he pleases. For a moment, assume the opposite. Suppose God love, God's love were regulated by anything else than his will. In such a case, he would love by rule, and loving by rule, he would be under a law of love. And then, so far from being free, God would himself be ruled by law. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to, what? Some excellency which he foresaw in them? No. What then? According to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Number 4. It is, it is infinite. Everything about God is infinite. His essence fills heaven and earth. His wisdom is illimitable. For he knows everything of the past, present, and future. His power is unbounded, for there is nothing too hard for him. So his love is without limit. There is a depth to it which none can fathom. There is a height to it which none can scale. There is a length and a breadth to it which defies measurement by any creature standard. Beautifully is this intimated in Ephesians 2.4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, the word great there is parallel with the God so loved of John 3.16. It tells us that the love of God is so transcendent it cannot be estimated. Quoting John Brine, 1743, quote, no tongue can fully express the infinitude of God's love or any mind comprehended. It passes, it passes knowledge, Ephesians 3.19. The most extensive ideas that a finite mind can frame about divine love are infinitely below its true nature. The heaven is not so far above the earth as the goodness of God is beyond the most raised conceptions which we are able to form of it. It is an ocean which swells higher than all the mountains of opposition and such as are the objects of it. It is a fountain from which flows all necessary good to all those who are interested in it, end quote. It is immutable. As with God himself, there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning, James 1.17. So with love neither, knows neither change nor diminution. The worm Jacob supplies a forceful example of this. Jacob have I loved, declared Jehovah, and despite all his unbelief and waywardness, he never ceased to love him. John 13.1 furnishes another beautiful illustration. That very night, one of the apostles would say, Show us the Father. Another would deny him with cursings. All of them would be scandalized by and forsake him. Nevertheless, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The divine love is subject to no vicissitudes. Divine love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench it. Song of Solomon 8, verses 6 and 7. Nothing can separate from it. Romans 8, 35 to 39. It is holy. God's love is not regulated by caprice passion or sentiment but by principle just as his grace reigns not at the expense of it but through righteousness romans 5:21. so his love never conflicts with his holiness god is light first john 1 5 is mentioned before god is love first john 4 8 
God's love is no more is no mere amiable weakness or effeminate softness. Scripture declares that whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Hebrews twelve six. God will not wink at sin, even in his own people. His love is pure, unmixed with any maudlin sentimentality. It is gracious. The love and favor of God are inseparable. This is clearly brought out in Romans eight thirty-two to 39. What that love is, from which there can be no separation, is easily perceived from the design and scope of the immediate context. It is that goodwill and grace of God which determined him to give his son for sinners. That love was the impulse of power of Christ incarnation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. Christ died not in order to make God love us, but because he did love his people. Calvary is the supreme demonstration of divine love. Whenever you are tempted to doubt the love of God, Christian, go back to Calvary. Here, then, is abundant cause for trust and patience under divine affliction. Christ was beloved of the Father, yet he was not exempted from poverty, disgrace, and persecution. He hungered and thirsted. Thus, it was not incompatible with God's love for Christ when he permitted men to spit upon and smite him. Then let no Christian call into question God's love when he is brought under painful afflictions and trials. God did not enrich Christ on earth with temporal prosperity, for he had not where to lay his head. But he did give him the spirit without measure, John 3:34. Learn then that spiritual blessings are the principal gifts of divine love. How blessed to know that when the world hates us, God loves us. Chapter 16, The Wrath of God. It is sad indeed to find so many professing Christians who appear to regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or who at least wish there were no such thing. While some would not go so far as to openly admit that they consider it a blemish on the divine character, yet they are far from regarding it with delight. They like not to think about it, and they rarely hear it mentioned without a secret resentment rising up in their hearts against it. Even with those who are more sober in their judgment, not a few seem to imagine that there is a severity about the divine wrath that makes it too terrifying to form a theme for profitable contemplation. Others harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with his goodness and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. Yes, many there are who turn away from a vision of God's wrath as though they were called to look upon some blotch in the divine character or some blot upon the divine government. But what say of the scriptures? As we turn to them, we find that God has made no attempt to conceal the facts concerning his wrath. He is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong unto him. His own challenge is, see now that I... See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I, ki I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glistening sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and I will reward them 
that hate me. Deuteronomy 32:39-41. A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. Because God is holy, He hates all sin, and because He hates all sin, His anger burns against the sinner. Psalm 7, verse 11. Now the wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as is his faithfulness, power, or mercy. It must be so, for there is no blemish, whatever, not the slightest defect in the character of God. Yet there would be if wrath were absent from him. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish, and he who hates it not is a moral leper. How could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly? How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity, Romans 9.22, towards it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? The very nature of God makes hell as real a necessity, as imperatively and eternally requisite as heaven is. Not only is there no perfection in God, but there is no perfection in him that is less perfect than another. The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It is the displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is a rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Insurrectionists against God's government shall be made to know that God is the Lord. They shall be made to feel how great that majesty is which they despise and how dreadful is that threatened wrath which they so little regarded. Not that God's anger is a malignant and malicious retaliation inflicted injury for the sake of it, inflicting injury for the sake of it, or in return for injury received. No, though God will vindicate his dominion as the governor of the universe, he will not be vindic vindictive. That divine wrath is one of the perfections of God is not only evident from the considerations presented above, but is also clearly established by the expressed declarations of his own word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1.18. Robert Haldane comments on this verse as follows, quote, It was revealed when the sentence of death was first pronounced, the earth cursed and man driven out of the earthly paradise, and afterwards by such examples of punishment as those of the deluge and the destruction of the cities of the plain by fire from heaven, but especially by the reign of death throughout the world. It was proclaimed in the curse of the law on every transgression and was intimated in the institution of sacrifice in all the services of the Mosaic dispensation. In the eighth chapter of this epistle, the apostle calls the attention of believers to the fact that the whole creation has become subject to vanity and groaneth and travaileth together in pain. The same creation which declares that there is a God and publishes his glory also proves that he is the enemy of sin and the avenger of the crimes of men. But above all, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven when the Son of God came down to manifest the divine character 
And when that wrath was displayed in his sufferings and death in a manner more awful than by all the tokens God has before given of his displeasure against sin, Besides this, the future and eternal punishment of the wicked is now declared in terms more solemn and explicit than formerly. Under the new dispensation, there are two revelations given from heaven, one of wrath and other of grace. End quote. Continuing on with the chapter 16, the wrath of God. Again, that the wrath of God is a divine perfection is plainly demonstrated by what we read in Psalm 95, verse 11. Unto whom I swear in my wrath, there are two occasions of God swearing and making promises, Genesis 22:16, and in pronouncing judgments, Deuteronomy 1, 34 and following. In the former, he swears in mercy to his children. In the latter, he swears to the to deprive a wicked generation of its inheritance because of murmuring and unbelief. An oath is for solemn confirmation. Hebrews 6.16 In Genesis 22.16, God says, By myself have I sworn. In Psalm 89, verse 35, he declares, Once have I sworn by my holiness. While in Psalm 95.11, he affirms, I swear in my wrath. Thus the great Jehovah himself appeals to his wrath. Thus claiming as a perfection wrath equal to his holiness. He swears by the one as much as by the other. Again, as in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2.9 And as all the divine perfections are illustriously displayed by him, John 1.18, therefore we do read of the wrath of the Lamb, Revelation 6.16. The wrath of God is a perfection of the divine character upon which we need to frequently meditate. First, that our hearts may be duly impressed by God's detestation of sin. We are ever prone to regard sin lightly, to gloss over its hideousness, to make excuses for it. But the more we study and ponder God's abhorrence of sin and his frightful vengeance upon it, the more likely are we to realize its heinousness. Secondly, to beget a true fear in our souls for God. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12:28-29. We cannot serve him acceptably unless there is due reverence for his awful majesty and godly fear of his righteous anger. And these are best promoted by frequently calling to mind that our God is a consuming fire. Thirdly, to draw out our souls in fervent praise for our having been delivered from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 Our readiness or our reluctancy to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of our heart's true attitude towards him. If we do not truly rejoice in God for what he is in himself, and that because of all the perfections which are eternally resonant in him, then how dwelleth the love of God in us? Each of us needs to be most prayerfully on his guard against devising an image of God in our thoughts, which is patterned after our own evil inclinations. Of old, the Lord complained, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether as thyself, Psalm 50, verse 21. 
If we rejoice not at the remembrance of his holiness, Psalm 97:12, if we rejoice not to know that in the soon coming day God will make a most glorious display of his wrath by taking vengeance upon all who now oppose him, it is proof positive that our hearts are not in subjection to him, that we are yet in our sins, and that we are on the way to the everlasting burnings. Rejoice, all ye nations, Gentiles, in parentheses, his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries. Deuteronomy 32:43. And again we read, I heard a voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, Revelation 9, verses 1 to 3. Great will be the rejoicing of the saints in that day when the Lord shall vindicate his majesty, exercise his awful dominion, magnify his justice, and overthrow the proud rebels who have dared to defy him. If thou, Lord, should markest iniquity or impute iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Psalm 130, verse 3. Well may each of us ask this question, for it is written, The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Psalm 1, verse 5. How sorely was Christ's soul exercised with thoughts of mark God's markings, the iniquity of his people, when they were upon him. He was amazed and very heavy. Mark 14:33 His awful agony his sweaty his bloody sweat his strong cries and supplications Hebrews 5:7 His reiterated prayers if it be possible let this cup pass from me his last dreadful cry my god my god why hast thou forsaken me all manifest but fearful apprehensions he had of what it was for god to mark iniquities well may poor sinners cry out, Lord, who shall stand when the Son of God himself so trembled between, beneath the weight of his wrath? If thou, my reader, Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.